Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Well, we had a we had communion at our Christmas Eve service, and uh, you didn't get to come. Uh, you missed a, a really a really special time. It, it occurred to me that as we were sharing communion the, uh, the other night, that it's one of those that's one of those activities that's been so drastically affected by the, my goodness, can we, it's almost two years of dealing with this. And communion is one of those things that we've just not been able to do well because of the whole thing of, of passing plates. Because, you know, you guys that sit in the back corners, like you're thinking, yeah, don't pass me the plate because you're the last person to touch it, right? And, uh, and so we did communion on uh, Christmas Eve. We tried it last year, and we tried it with the little, the little uh, peel top things. And and I, I saw that go down, and I thought that was the most awful way of doing communion that's ever been thought of, of, of peeling those little plastic things back, and, and like the bread was stuck between two plastic layers, and it was kind of dark, and you couldn't see to peel the layers apart, and, and I'm not beyond admitting when things are, things are, 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 when mistakes happen, and that was just a mistake. So I said, well, let's do communion a different way, and so we did it different, and, and I, think, I think it worked out much better this time that we, uh, that we got to do that. I, I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of behind the scenes, though, of, of how that whole process unfolds. I went to the grocery store a couple of days before Christmas Eve because I needed to pick up the grape juice. I, I had, we had bread, and the bread we had was a little bit out of date. So we had to order new bread, and if you, it was crunchy. Did you notice that if you were here? It was like there was a little bit of crunchiness to the wafers, which was unusual because usually communion wafers are, are um, well, less than crunchy. I'll say that. Uh, so we got new ones, and they were a little crispy. It was kind of, kind of a, a pleasant thing. But I uh, went and got grape juice. And so I wasn't completely sure what we would find when we went to the store to get grape juice because when we did the Lord's Supper at the, during the summer at the church picnic, uh, there was a shortage of grape juice. And so we had to go with cran grape juice. And nobody complained. Uh, my kid actually appreciated it because he likes cran grape juice. And so he was really excited about it, was eager to get the leftovers and that sort of thing. Um, but I got to the grocery store, went over to Food City, and, and there were plenty of options, plenty of, grape, plenty of grape juice on the shelf. I almost grabbed prune juice, which uh, could have been bad. But there were plenty of options. Uh, and I found myself standing there in front of the shelf, the wall of juice, and... and uh, I had, a, I had a, a serious question that I had to answer. Do I get the more expensive name brand or do I buy the less expensive store brand? Uh, so I don't know. If you're trying to make a decision, you're like me. The internal dialogue kind of starts working. Like you start, you start asking and answering the question, right? And so, so the first thing I thought was, this is the Lord's Supper. We should use only the best, right? And so, uh, so I was, you know, you got to go with name brand because you got to go with only the best. But then I thought about the scene in Indiana Jones where, uh, where Indiana Jones is about to find, is trying to figure out which cup Jesus would have drank out of. And, and Indiana Jones comes to the conclusion that Jesus wouldn't have drank out of the, the fancy cup that he would have drank out of the cup of the carpenter. And so I thought to myself that if Jesus were buying grape juice, he'd probably buy the store brand. Um, <laughs> and then I, then I rationalized, right? Well, they're the same thing, just in a different package. I mean, they're probably made in the same factory, right? I mean, just in a different package. And then I looked up the, above the grape juice shelf, and there was the, the glass bottles, the sparkling grape juice shelf. And I thought, well, that'd be fun. 
a little sparkling grape juice on Christmas Eve. I mean, there's no, there's nothing, no prohibitions against that. And so I thought, then I thought, well, how am I going to get sparkling grape juice into the cup without the carbonation kind of diffusing? And so then I was like, then you get flat sparkling grape juice. That's not going to work. If I were a Baptist, I realized I wouldn't be even shopping for in the grape juice aisle at this point in time. Uh, but I had to stick with the grape juice. And I'll just leave you guessing at which choice I made. Some of you can't tell the difference. I know that uh, my son came to help me. Uh, help me. We were kind of cleaning up after the service on uh, Christmas Eve, and there were some leftovers. And I looked over as he was helping, and he was taking, drinking the leftovers. I said, "What are you doing?" He said, "I didn't want." It. He said, "It's good. I didn't want it to go to waste." And I said, "Well, I said, be glad it's grape juice then, and not the real thing, or we would have had a real problem on our hands." I wonder if you look at your pantry, if there are things in your pantry where the store brand, the generic brand, you know, you know what, it's just fine. You know, whatever that, whatever that item is, there's things you know in your pantry that you could get the name brand and you could get the store brand and, and, and it doesn't matter. Uh, like, and then there's things that it really does matter. Uh, for example, I, I love banana pudding, but don't bring me a banana pudding with generic Nilla wafers, right? Don't bring a banana pudding with generic vanilla wafers. It better be Nabisco. It's got to be the real thing because that matters, right? So there's some things where the store brand is fine, and then there's other things where the store brand just won't do. And I'm sure that re the reality is that 95% of that debate is really just psychological. But I think, I think we've all encountered things where the substitutes for the real things come up very, very short. As we resume our journey through the second half of Acts, I, I want that debate to, to sort of bring some insight into the conclusion of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey as we jump back into Acts chapter 14 today. In Acts chapter 13, we were in the middle of, of the first missionary journey of the church. And so here we, we come back um, to Acts chapter 14, and our heroes, Paul and Barnabas, are still very much on mission. And you can kind of see the, the, the journey that they're taking there on the map that's on the slide. Um, but their experience on this journey, well, it hasn't been one of mass conversions, of, of thousands of people getting saved. And in fact, we learned back in chapter 13 that, that there were deeply entrenched interests who were really working against their, their mission, who were working against the, the spread of the gospel. Sure, there were lots of people saved, but Paul and Barnabas found that the soil here on this journey is much more difficult to plow. We ended chapter 13 with our missionaries getting ran out of a town. In Acts chapter 13, verse 50, it says, The Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook the dust off their feet and against them, and they went on to Iconium. We pick up in Acts chapter 14, though, with a very different experience. I would invite you as we read this that you would stand with me as I, as I read Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. 
When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and to Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. But you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas to, to continue the work in difficult seasons. God, I pray that as we, um, as we just consider the, the, the outcome of these um, of these endeavors, Lord, that they would challenge us even into this day in our own witness, in our own community. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. You know, as we work through Acts, these journeys will occupy a lot of the, the remainder of our time in these last in this last half of the book. And these, these journeys really kind of function like a travel log. You know, Facebook is that for us today, right? You go here, you take pictures, you tell people what you did. Uh, you know, everybody can say, well, I saw, I saw you there. I saw what you were doing. Facebook becomes our, our travel log. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're on vacation or on a mission trip. People post pictures to Facebook and Instagram to explain where they were going and what they were doing. And that's what Paul is doing here or Luke is doing for Paul. He is telling us where they went and telling us what happened, where they went to next and what happened there. But, but each of these little individual communities provide insight and guidance for us today. You know, we see victories, but the Bible's also very honest with failures. It's one of the reasons we know we can trust and affirm the Bible, because the fact that the Bible doesn't only record the victories tells us that we're reading a trustworthy book. Because if I write my own autobiography, I may be a, a little, uh, I may embellish some things. I may not tell you about all the weaknesses and failures. I only tell you about the victories and the triumphs and the things like that. But the Bible is very clear that the only, the only character in the story of the Bible is, that's, that's completely right and true all the time is, is God. The human characters always seem to come up short. And here we find that the first stop in the book of Acts after getting ran out of Pisidia was a, was a community known as is Iconium. And again, each little community has some things to teach us. And Iconium reminds us first and foremost here that the truth about Jesus, it's not universally received. 
At the same time, those words are that, that good news about Jesus is not universally received, it, it should not at all hinder our efforts. What happens when Paul and Barnabas roll up into town? They, their normal stop was the, was the synagogue, right? They're Jewish. I mean, if you were going to a, a new community and you were going to live there for a while, the first stop you make is, is probably not going to be the mosque, right? You're probably going to go to a, a, a Christian church. If I had to guess, you're probably going to look for a Baptist church to kind of go and, and check out because it's what you're familiar with. It's what you're comfortable with. It's what's convenient. It's what's known to you. Paul and Barnabas were Jews. Jesus was the Messiah, so it made sense. The very first place to begin the conversation about Jesus would be the place where people are looking for Jesus, looking for the Messiah in that Jewish synagogue. And they go to Iconium, they preach, and we're told that a lot of people got saved. There are people who heard the gospel. People got saved. But just as many as got saved, there were probably just as many that didn't get saved. In fact, Luke tells us that, that there were a lot of people that were opposed. A lot of people didn't get saved. And, and I've had these experiences in my own life where I've gone on mission trips. I've told you about villages in Mexico where I've been able to go and share the gospel, and I've seen dozens and dozens of people raise their hand in response to the gospel. I can't, I can't get those images out of my mind where I've seen that happen, but I can also think of places where I've been on mission trips. I can think of going to Alberta, Canada several years ago. And uh, Canada's hard soil. It's not because it's frozen. Uh, Canada is a hard place to share the gospel. And I remember that every single gospel conversation we had was met with opposition and hostility and scorn. Nobody that we talked to wanted to hear the gospel. Nobody wanted to hear who Jesus was and what Jesus could do. And, and you think about just the difference between, I mean, just one country apart and to see that sort of, sort of experience there. And so here in Acts chapter 14, we get this, we get this mixed response to the gospel here. We're, we're told in verse 3 of Acts chapter 14, they stayed there a long time. They didn't just preach a, preach a revival and then get out of town. They, they stayed there for a long time. We don't know how long they were there for, for certain. We're told that even as they preached, that they were granted signs and wonders, that their miracles were happening as they were going about their ministry there. But the division in that town got so fierce that those unbelieving factions of the community, they organized what was the equivalent of a first century lynch mob. Instead of pitchforks and torches, though, they were gathering stones. Now, God wants us to have courage. He wants us to have tenacity, but he also gives us a brain. And if the community is getting ready to run you out of town and, and murder you with rocks, it's probably a safe time to, to go ahead and, and make an exit. And so we're told that once they finished in Iconium, they, they fled to a nearby region known as Lycaonia. Now, this is hard work that they're doing. This is difficult, a difficult task that they have in front of them. It's not going to be easy. Every conversation is not a conversion, but it doesn't stop us from having the conversation. I think we need to keep that in mind in our own culture as well. Every time we share the gospel, people aren't going to get saved, but that doesn't mean that we have to stop having that conversation. So they move on to Lycaonia, and we're reminded in Lycaonia that, that Jesus is the Savior, not a convenient religious accessory. There's a few things you need to know about this little community of Lycaonia. 
There was very little Jewish presence in this community. In fact, there, there was no Jewish synagogue. They were trying to get out of the other town where they were getting ready to be executed, so they go to this new community. And so they go to this new, this new region, and with no synagogue, there was no home base for ministry. We understand that Lycaonia was a bit of a wild part of the Roman Empire. It had a kind of a frontier town vibe to it. There was not much Roman presence there. There wasn't a lot of, of, of the, the Roman authority there. And so people were kind of left to their own devices. We might say that this area wasn't as civilized as other portions of the empire. However, the Apostle Paul doesn't show up and say, man, should I, should I really do this here? Should I really preach here? He's not looking around thinking, how am I going to do this with no synagogue? No, what happens is Paul, Paul starts preaching. He preaches wherever he can find an audience. And we're told right away when they, when they land in this new community that he's preaching, and as he's preaching, he looks out in the audience there in the crowd, and there's a guy who's been a cripple. He's been crippled from birth. And, and he made eye contact with the guy, and, and he could tell that this guy was keyed in, this guy was listening, this guy was, was paying attention. And, and this guy that, that's healed here, we, he never walked ever before. But that day during that time when Paul was preaching, everything changed. And a man who'd never walked before by the power of God was made whole. Now you think, that's a perfect setup, right? Paul's preaching, everybody's listening. There's a guy in the service who's been lame since he was born. He's never walked before, and now suddenly this guy gets up, and he's walking, and he's dancing, and he's jumping, and everybody in the community saw it happen. I mean, Foster, this is when we, uh, this is when we get the band back up. We sing Just As I Am, and the altar's filled, and people are saved. There's a new church formed right here in this community because God did a great miracle right here in the, middle, in the midst of his preaching, in the midst of this worship service. It's an incredible setup for God to, to, to rescue people from their sin and to deliver them over into, into a new way of living. There's just one problem. You know what that problem is? The Lycaonians, <laughs> the people. It's like the old saying, if you ever find a perfect church, please don't go in because you'll ruin it. Or as I hear from pastors, you know, the church is great if it weren't for the people. Um. So what happened after that man was healed? Well, something remarkable happened. Paul and Barnabas got new names. The community, seeing what happened, gave Paul and Barnabas the, the names of Greek gods. And so instead of a, a great revival of people being saved, Paul and Barnabas were then identified as being their own little G gods. And the Lycaonians... Instead of giving their life to Jesus, they started to go gather the farm animals. They wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because it was clear that Paul and Barnabas were little G gods who were there to deliver the Lycaonians. And so instead of a great revival and the gospel being proclaimed and people being saved, a gross idolatry was about to take place with Paul and Barnabas right there in the middle. I love how one commentator described it. Um, he talks about, um, talks about what actually, what, why this happens. You know, we read this and we think, what a weird thing, right? I mean, I can say in, in 20 plus years of ministry, nobody's ever looked at me and said, you know, you remind me of Zeus. Uh, the, the closest somebody said is they, I remind them of, of Vin Diesel. Uh, but, uh, 
But no one's ever said, man, you look like, you, you remind me of Zeus, of Hermes. I've never been mistaken for a Greek god, but I've also never had a lame man get healed in the middle of preaching either. And so, uh, so that's never happened. But, but what a strange event. How did preaching the gospel about Jesus lead to such an odd outcome? Well, it turns out that there's something going on in this community that we don't know about unless we dig around in history just a little bit. And there's a legend that Zeus and Hermes, the Greek gods, they had once come to the hill country here in Lycaonia, and they were, dis- dis- they were disguised as mortals. They were looking for somewhere to stay. And though they asked a thousand homes for lodging, no one would take them in. Finally, at a very humble cottage of, made of straw and reeds, a very poor elderly couple by the name of Philemon and Baucus, they freely welcomed them in, and feasted with them with what meager provisions they had. And so in appreciation for that hospitality, the gods there transformed the cottage into a temple, and they made the couple priest and priestess, and when they died, they were immortalized as a couple of great trees. And those inhospitable homes, the 999 other homes that said no, they were destroyed in an act of judgment. And so there's this legend that's at work here in this community, and now Paul and Barnabas come in, and well, they kind of show some power that nobody's ever had before. And now the Lycaonians say, we're not letting that happen again. Bring out the fattened calf. Let's sacrifice to these gods who've come to visit us. And now we have Paul and Barnabas who are at the middle of a heated religious controversy. The perfect opportunity to use the healed man's testimony as a, as a platform to bring the gospel truth to these savage Lycanians has resulted in a terrible misunderstanding. And every attempt to set the record straight comes up short. Verse 18 of chapter 14, even with these words, when they tried to clarify what was going on, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Can you imagine how horrifying that would be? If you were as a Christian and somebody from another country came up and offered a living sacrifice and slaughtered an animal right here in your presence, and I'm not like talking about the the fresh seafood restaurant where they catch the fish and cook and eat right there. I'm talking about like a a, a religious ritual sacrifice in your honor. I mean, what what a terrifying thing to take place. But this is exactly what's happening. We're looking at this and we think, well, I'm glad we live in 2022 because this is way too savage for us today. Nothing like this would ever happen for us today. But I would argue this, that the motivation behind this response, maybe not the response itself, but at least the motivation behind this response is very much alive and well today. These people, these Lycaonians revealed that They may have been interested in this new God that Paul and Barnabas were talking about, but they only wanted to know this God on their own terms. And I would say that that very much happens today. People today only want to know and experience Christ within the boundaries of their own presuppositions. Lloyd Ogilvie said this, that Jesus is a VIP to be honored, but not believed or followed. In America, he is a custom, but not the true Christ. He is a captured hero of casual civil religion, but not the Lord of our lives. 
You see, when we try to fix Jesus into our own presuppositions, what we have actually done is we've made Jesus very safe. Not safe in the sense that he will not harm us, but safe in the sense that he will not challenge us. He fits into our mold, not molding us into his. He becomes the safe accessory of our cultural experience, not what he truly is, someone who is calling us as his people to a radical departure from being conformed to the things of this world. I appreciate how Kent Hughes said it. Almost everyone will receive Jesus as the greatest man who ever lived. Just leave it there and everything is fine. Enlightened circles are comfortable with calling him the supreme psychologist of history. He is safe as the most important person of all time. The safe, sweet Jesus, meek and mild, sentimental, impotent, distant. He is no threat. The world will do anything for a Christ who is limited by our own perspectives. What it will not do is allow him to put forth his own claims. That is the current expression of the person of Jesus that is received into the culture in which we live today. In the C.S. Lewis world of Narnia, Jesus is portrayed as a powerful, benevolent lion. When one of the uh, one of the, the little girls is uh, in the story when she asks about the, the nature of this powerful lion. One of the main characters in the story said, said, Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, if we're not careful, we can make the same mistake of seeking the wrong Jesus in our churches. We can make the mistake of looking for the God who affirms our politics, not serving the Savior who challenges our politics. We can look for the God who affirms our lifestyle choices, not the Savior who transforms our lifestyle choices. We can look for the God who affirms our attitudes, not the God who conforms our attitudes. We can look for the God who receives our worship on Sunday and is content with our indifference on Monday through Saturday. When we do these things, we are looking for not the Savior, but whatever our definition of safe might be. And Jesus is not safe because he will challenge us, transform us, and conform us into his image. As we enter into 2022, we need to be constantly evaluating our lives against the standard that Jesus has given to us, revealed to us in the Word of God. And as we begin this year, it's as good a time as any to ask the Lord to do a cleansing of the temple. If there's ideas, opinions, perspectives, preferences, and those things don't line up with Scripture, then let's ask the Lord, turn that table over. Get it out. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, come in and turn over the, t turn over the tables that have set up shop in my temple that have no business in the heart of a child of God. It's a good time to ask the question, in the last year, have I developed habits or tendencies or opinions that don't line up with the principles that I know should govern my life? Like Kaenea, as much as it reminds us about this important principle of Jesus being a savior, not an accessory, it also reminds us of this, the message is always greater than the messenger. These folks in this town, in this community, they, they were ready to make Paul and Barnabas little G-gods. 
They were ready to worship them. They were ready to celebrate them. They were ready to honor them. And I'll be honest, it'd be probably pretty easy to receive that adoration. You could probably even rationalize it, right? Let these people set us up as, as, as little deities in their town, and once they venerate us, once they honor us, once they celebrate us, once we've earned their approval and they listen to us, then we can redirect them and point them in the direction of the true Savior, Right? I mean, you could rationalize that pattern. You could rationalize that behavior. But Paul and Barnabas couldn't allow it. They did everything they could to try to stop the idolatry. They got in front of the crowd. They tore their garments in an act of humility and, and grief. They, we're men just like you are. We're not gods to be worshipped. We need to guard against this temptation as well. Not the temptation to be worshipped. But the temptation that we have so frequently to place too much emphasis on the messenger and not enough, not enough emphasis on the message. You know, I've seen in my life, you've experienced this before, that, that Christians, we can be easily swayed by, by, by waves of teaching and popular things that, that come through. We can be swayed by popular books and authors that, that come about. I can think back to, to 15 years ago, there was um, uh, some authors that were, were really, really emphasized in the church and uh, Rob Bell is one. Uh, Rob Bell is somebody, everybody was listening to what Rob Bell had to say. His books were being sucked off the shelf, and Rob Bell is as far out of the fold as you could possibly be in, in this day and time. And I think back, and, and man, people were just, just, man, give me everything he writes. Let me have everything that he says. Let me follow every tweet and listen to every post. We need to make sure that we place our emphasis on the message and not the messenger, because what happens to us when the messenger fails. Because we need to remember, we're, we're simply humans in need of a Savior, all of us. Pastors, authors, lay people in the pews, we're all simply humans in need of a Savior, and there's only one all-sufficient Savior who is worthy of our worship, and his name is Jesus. What happens when our messengers fail? I, I think of the Apostle Peter. Man, Peter's a hero, right? I mean, he was the, 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 the guy in the first front of the line with Jesus. He was there... He was going to stand with Jesus even when he messed up at Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus restored him. Peter preached the first Christian sermon. I mean, Peter was the rock on which the church was built. But listen, Peter was not without his flaws. And even when we get past the flaws of Peter there when he falls at Jesus' crucifixion, there's still conflict involving Peter going further into the New Testament. He had some serious struggles. The New Testament actually records for us a very significant disagreement between Peter and Paul. They weren't just, they didn't get along all the time. They didn't see eye to eye on everything. And Peter had some serious shortcomings that Paul actually had to deal with. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul actually details the matter. It essentially boiled down to a problem of hypocrisy. Peter was saying one thing and, and doing another. And in Galatians 2.14, the apostle Paul says this. He says, when I saw that their conduct, talking about Peter and, and Peter's associates. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And everybody who heard that went, <gasps> Right, the, the, the emphasis is kind of lost on us, but everybody who heard Paul rebuke Peter here heard that this was intense. This was a serious rebuke. And Peter had some serious shortcomings because guess what? He's a human. 
just like all of us. But Peter's message, did that take away from the sermon that he preached in Acts chapter 2? <laughs> Not at all. It take away the, the writing that Peter had done in First and Second Peter? Not, not at all. Because it's the message, not the messenger, that we are deeply concerned about, that we're deeply worried about. We're all flawed messengers, but we serve a flawless Savior. When people today say, I don't want to go to that church because it's just a bunch of hypocrites, don't judge the church by the hypocrites. Judge the church by the Savior. Don't judge the church by the folks sitting in the pews and the guy standing in the pulpit because I'll be the first to tell you we are messed up. We are flawed. We are working towards righteousness in heaven, but right now we're flawed and we come up short, but we serve a Savior who is perfect in all His ways. Don't look at us. Look at Jesus. We're working on it, but Jesus has already got it figured out. Paul and Barnabas show us just how important it is. Make sure that people are focused on the Word, focused on the Savior, not the messengers. Because even Paul and Barnabas here, they are, uh, they're not ready to receive the, the adoration that they're about to get. What happens next? Well, this crowd turns, doesn't it? They went from making them Zeus and Hermes. That was the easy path. Right? Worship us. We're Zeus. He's, I'm Zeus. He's Hermes. Worship us. Give us adoration and praise. Put us in charge, and we'll point you to Jesus. That, that, would, have been, uh, that would have been the easy pathway. But Paul and Barnabas can't do that. They know they can't do that. And so this crowd turns very quickly. I'm reminded of how the crowd turned on Jesus after the, the triumphant entry. They go from shouting Hosanna to crucify him in a real short amount of time. And here we are, Paul and Barnabas, as they are trying to work through this, the enemies of the gospel in that previous town of Iconium show up, and they're able, in just a matter of, of moments, it seems, they convince this crowd to turn against Paul and Barnabas, and we're told that right there in the city square, they stoned the apostle Paul. Somebody had rocks convenient, and they drag his lifeless body outside the city. That sounds like the end of the story. First missionary journey, they couldn't even finish it. Couldn't even get back to Antioch. They get out there, and they meet opposition, they meet hostility, and there he is. He's dead. I can't imagine what that must have been like. Just, just ponder what hardship you have gone through in the name of Jesus. And then look at the Apostle Paul. I've never had rocks thrown at me while preaching a sermon. I've never had people threaten to flog me or beat me for being a Christian. But this is it. This is the real deal. This was an attempt to silence the voice of the Apostle Paul for good. And so here the body of the Apostle Paul lays outside this city of Lystra. Lifeless, broken, bloody, dead. But God wasn't finished. Paul laying there, one eye opens, the other eye opens. In tremendous pain from having rocks thrown at him. But he picks up his broken and bloody body. And he says, I quit! I'm going back to where I came from! 
I'm going back to safety. I'm going back to making tents. I'm going back to where, where I don't have to do this anymore. I give up. <laughs> nope. Look at verse 14, or verse 21 of Acts chapter 14. They go to this little town called Derby. And when they preached the gospel to that city, we're told, they'd made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, which is where he had just been stoned. They go to Iconium, where the enemies were that got him stoned. And they go back to Antioch. And we're told in verse 22, along the way, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He shows them the bumps on his head. There's one, there's one, there's one. Verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. He didn't throw his hands up in the air because it was hard. The man had just been beaten with rocks. I'd give him a pass if he took a vacation. Not Paul. Because in spite of all the opposition... In spite of all the hard work, the church was being strengthened. The church was growing. Acts 14, 23 talks about appointing elders. Elders wasn't talking about the age of the people, but the responsibility of the person. They were charged with leading these newborn churches. Man, it feels like these last two years have been a constant struggle for the church. I'll tell you this, if Iconium and the Lycanians do anything, they remind us of this. Work's not finished. It's not done yet. It's not over. We're not through. And it doesn't matter if Omicron comes around or... What's next after Omicron? Eta, Theta, Yoda, Kappa, Lambda, Mu? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what comes around. The work's not finished. Doesn't matter what happens in our neighborhoods. The work's not finished. Last night when the tornado alert went off, I, had, uh, I, I have my body trained that when the sun goes down, it's time to go to bed. And so, uh, so I, I, man, I, it gets dark and I'm ready to go to sleep because uh, I like to get up in the morning. I like the quiet time in the mornings. And so, uh, so I was looking at the weather last night and, and, uh, and I saw, well, about 11 o'clock, it looks like this is about to go south. And so I told Heather, I said, I'm going to go ahead and lay down. So I said, I'd like to get a couple hours in, the, in, in bed before, uh, before things go south. You know, if I'm going to be up a while, I'd like to, you know, be rested a little bit. So I went and go to bed, and of course the phone goes off, the tornado warning comes through, and, and I look at what time it is, and I th- my first thought was, well, I'm glad I went to bed when I did. So then I threw on some clothes, and I, you know, I'm looking at the phone, because we're all meteorologists now, right? Like, oh, I'm looking at the radar. That's a bow echo. That's a hook echo. That's a, a hell core, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm predicting what's going on. And so I step outside, because that's what you do when the tornado's coming. You step outside. <laughs> I live on a hill. I can see it coming. So I step outside, and I'm looking. And from my house, I can see the mountain up here. I can see Covenant College and all the lights up there. And I'm looking, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, I'd see this thing coming, right? And my neighbor's out in the driveway. And, uh, and guess what he's doing? He's standing out in the driveway too. And he's looking at his phone, trying to decide whether we're about to you know, be blown off the map or not. 
And uh, he hollers at me. He says, hey, Brian. I said, hey, George. He said, what are you doing? I said, oh, watching the wind blow. What are you doing? He said, same thing. And George is a retired Presbyterian pastor. And, uh, and I, was, I was talking to him there, watching, the, watching the, the tornado come over the ridge or not come over the ridge. It occurred to me that, that right there was an opportunity to have a conversation with somebody. Now, George, not, George knows where he's going when he dies. There's no question there. But how many of us have those opportunities with our neighbors? Just those random chance encounters with somebody to have a conversation with someone about Christ. The work isn't finished. Our neighbors are still lost. And though there is great opposition, just like there was in Acts chapter 14, in the face of our cultural appropriation of a customized Savior into this social religion that we have today, in the face of all this, you know what's going to help you when the tornado's coming over the ridge? It's not this false Jesus that we've invented. It's the true and living Savior that hears us when we cry. You know what happens when the doctor says, you know what, it's COVID. It's not the false Jesus that we've invented that's going to help us. It's the true and living Savior that hears us when we're sick. When the doctor says the test is positive for something maybe worse than COVID, it's not that fake Jesus that fits into our presupposition. It's the great physician who's greater than all those little G-gods that we surrender our life to. And as we go through this year, that's what our community needs to know, the true and living Savior. And it's our job to tell. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for the person of Jesus, for the work of Jesus. I thank you for the truth of Jesus. We live in a world where Jesus is a convenient accessory, but there are many who affirm him as a great man, but deny him as a savior. And it is our job as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to make sure that people know who Jesus is. And so in those moments of crisis, whether it's the tornado warning or the doctor's office or the phone call when the test comes back, in those moments of despair when the child won't answer their phone, or when it just seems like there's not enough bank account to cover the month. It's the person of Jesus that we turn to, that we trust, that we depend on, that we cry out to. And it is the true and living Savior who hears us when we cry. And so God, in this strange world in which we live, in which we don't know whether we're supposed to shake hands or fist bump or We just don't, it's, Lord, you know the frustrations that we're experiencing today. May we never lose sight of the true and living Jesus that we might consistently point people in that direction. May we all be faithful to the gospel. Lord, I pray that if there are elements in our life, if there's situations in our life, if there's opinions and ideas and perspectives in our life where we reject just, we may not do it overtly but we reject your authority over us in those things 
then God, I pray that today that we might ask you to clean that temple and remove those things from us. Lord, I pray that if there's opinions that we have and preferences that we have that don't line up with the standards that you have set, that we would allow you to, to conform us more and more every day into your image and likeness. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd have the courage to give you free reign in our life, to mold us more and more into your image. Be with us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to stand and have a time of invitation response. Maybe the response isn't public where you need to come to an altar and pray, but maybe there's, and you, you just ask that question right now. Lord, are there tables in, in this temple that need to be turned over? Are there attitudes and perspectives in my life that I've created a Jesus who affirms those things, but if I'm honest and I read the scriptures, I see that the Jesus I've created is not the true and living Savior. And in these moments, maybe there's just a table that needs to be turned over because you've created a safe Jesus, not a Jesus who challenges you. So today, in this moment, would you let the true and living Savior challenge you and change you and transform you? Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.